0: Let me start us off with a riddle. Y'all ready for a riddle? You awake, Scott? All right, here's your riddle. What do LeBron James, Kim Yong Un, and Kevin Sistrom have in common? LeBron James, right? You would know as arguably the best basketball player in the world. My boys are going to yell me for that later, but uh, well, yeah, that's true. My son would be right up there with him. Um, Kim Jong Un, unarguably the most eccentric world political leader uh, in known to man. He's the North Korean supreme dictator. Wants to launch missiles just for hobby at anybody who's sitting still these days. And Kevin Sistrom is the co-founder of Instagram. You may not know who he is, but you've been using his little deal. Can you imagine this guy? He invents this thing called Instagram. He owns it for two years. He sells it for a billion dollars. He went from just kind of nerdy computer engineer to $400 million uh, sales guy. In two years. All right, so what do these guys have in common? Well, not a whole lot, except that they were all named to Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. Along with 97 other people. But what's interesting is, this, this, this is going to be so obvious, you're going to wonder, do I have to drive to church to hear this? Um, they have something else in common they had to have been born in order to live the life that they're living. Every one of these guys was born, and actually happened to be about the same age. But there's a great deal of diversity in terms of how how did these guys come into the world? LeBron James, born to a 16-year-old single mother in in poverty in Akron, Ohio. Kim Yong-un is the grandson of... Well, he's the son of Kim Jong-il, and I don't remember the grandfather's name, but he was the supreme dictator of Korea for a while. So he grows up in a family where there was political influence and power. Kevin Sistrom, interesting, was born in the city where the Boston Marathon starts, up in the Massachusetts-Boston suburb area. In spite of the fact of their diversity, they all had to have gone through the same events of birth to live the life that they now live. Now, relevant to our topic today, we're going to look at the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Relevant to his situation, what, what do all of us have in common here today? Besides the fact that none of us were on Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential list. I I just checked just to see if I was on it. That's how I discovered this. But uh, apparently they overlooked me again this year. What do all of us have in common? Every one of us, every one of us without exception in this room has in common this. We all need to experience conversion in order to be a Christian. In order to be right with God in order to have a life beyond this world. We all need to experience conversion, this event, this activity that we're going to see happen in the Apostle Paul's life. We all share that need in order to come into a relationship with God. J.C. Ryle, writing in the late 1800s, says, All people born into the world of every rank and nation must have their hearts changed between the cradle And the grave before they can go to heaven. All, all men, without exception, must be converted. Right? Last week we studied Acts chapter 8. We met a man, an Ethiopian eunuch. Unique background, different race than the man we're going to talk about today. Different background than the man we're going to talk about today. Today we'll meet a man named Saul of Tarsus. And we'll under, watch his life undergo this incredible change. And then in the next week or two, we'll talk about a man named Cornelius, a Roman centurion. Three very different men who have very unique experiences, but all of them travel through the same event The event of conversion. And conversion is, is no small doctrine in scripture. It is vital to you and I understanding what I would call sort of the the new genetics of our lives. When you were born into this world, you were born with certain traits, certain backgrounds, certain things that made you an individual. But when you undergo conversion, something happens to you that actually makes you a different person. The Bible says that we recognize no man according to the flesh any longer. If you've Become a Christian, you've become a new creation. You've become something that you were not before. There's a change in you that redefines your life. I saw a banner the other day out driving near my house. It was a church, a new little church plan, I guess, and they put a banner up. And the banner said, don't live your life in the past, live your life on purpose. I thought, oh, Okay. Everybody's looking for a slogan. That's, that's cool. That works. But I, I love the fact that for a Christian, there, there's, there's a great statement there. Don't live your life in the past. And without, without a doubt. I mean, you can imagine if all of us started telling our stories, just ask individuals to stand up and you know, tell us your story. Tell us, tell us how you were raised, where you came from, what your background is. You know, what what economics did you grow up under? What kind of opportunities did you have as a young person? Or did you not have because your parents were a certain way or they had certain things so they could afford stuff for you they couldn't afford things for you? What What kind of personality did you have? You know, were you reserved, quiet, withdrawn? Were you sneaky? Were you loud, boisterous, got into a lot of trouble? I wonder for some Christians, what's the most defining thing about you now? Now that you're a Christian, what defines who you are now? And I think it's sad to be honest that many, many Christians are still being defined by the things that are part of their past. I mean, without a doubt, some horrible experiences that perhaps some have had here today. You revisit them and you bump into them and memories come back old habits that won't seem to die, but, but conversion says something to you that at a moment in your life, something so significant happened that you have the right to expect your life was redefined by your conversion. So this is no small doctrine to get our minds around. It's also no small element in terms of how do you, how do you relate to the Christian life? If you don't understand conversion and you have not experienced conversion because there's lots of religious people who've never experienced a moment of conversion. God has done something in this person's life at this point that changes the course of their lives. Instead, they're they're just one day follows the next, follows the next, follows the next, slowly stir in some thoughts, go to church, be around some people, change a little here, change a little there, change a little here, go to church, hear some messages that say, hey, that sounds like that's wrong, this is right, Uh, change some of that, adjust some of that, get around some people who don't do those things, they do these things, change some of this, become like that. And Christianity then becomes this this self-reform project where you live your whole life just trying to be persuaded to give up a few ideas and grab a few ideas and give up a few ideas and grab a few ideas. But but you're basically the power source for that. Unless you understand conversion. In conversion, something happens to you that will redefine you and enable you in a way that could not have happened before. And that's what we're going to see here In the Apostle Paul's life. So let's read Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul is in Jerusalem. He's about to travel north to Damascus because there's, there's a bunch of folks who have fleed there. There's a bunch of Christians who have fleed there, and they're living in Damascus. And he's gotten wind of that, and he wants to go bring them back to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. This is interesting. I want to, There's so many great thoughts, and we have to just not preach on all of them, but just can you at least grab a thought here that the Son of God takes your life personally? Right? Had had Paul actually beat up on Jesus Christ yet? Yes, according to Jesus. No, according to his resurrected body that he was living in. But Jesus takes your life personally. What happens to you, he feels, experiences, and goes through with you. Saul, why are you persecuting me when you persecute my own? Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And there, and here, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened for some days He was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Can you imagine what this sounded like from him in that moment? He he is, I mean, he is the guy I've been after and persecuting. He is the son of God. You got to believe me on this. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Father, again, we are grateful for the opportunity to encounter divinely inspired words preserved for us. Lord, we need the aid and leadership and power of the Holy Spirit that we might see in your word, the truth that you have placed here. And it would not simply stay on these pages, but it, it would be driving on the street in our hearts, in our homes, in the workplace, reaching the lost. Lord, you would awaken our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want I want to make three simple points in describing conversion, and then I want to let Paul bring commentary about his conversion later on as he revisits what happened to him there. But three points. One decent, God interested people need conversion. People who fall in a category of being decent and God interested people need conversion. This is how Paul describes his own life on this day when he needed to be converted. Galatians chapter one verse thirteen he says, "For you have heard of my former life in Judaism here, install some vocabulary here if you 've experienced conversion, then you have a former aspect about your life right? and if you can 't you know there 's a few things here i 'm going to share today that if you you can 't track with me." then you need to revisit your conversion. There needs to be like a recall going on this morning. You might say, yeah, I, I think I'm converted. Okay, if you don't track with me in a bunch of these categories, then you might want to step back and say, huh, I may have a def- defective conversion in my life. Because these things really do describe conversion. So are there f- is there a former life for you that you are aware of? For you've heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently, tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Who is this man, Saul of Tarsus, who's going to undergo conversion here in this story? Well, he's a a religious man. He's he's a rising in the ranks religious man. He's a religious official. He's a man who's had training in the realm of religion. He would be recognized as a man who represents Judaism, the traditions of my father were, were they weren't just, you know, that my dad drove a comet, I drove a comet. You know, this was this was history that related to Judaism and religious practice and religious pursuit of God. That's who this man was. And so not foreign to the scriptures is that you you can be a religious person in need of conversion. In fact, Jesus prophesied in John chapter 16, describing, really described exactly the apostle Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus. Jesus told his disciples on the last night, they will put you out of the synagogues. That's what he was going to do in Damascus. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. All right, can you get this one concept from this passage? You can think you're serving God and not know God all at the same time. That was the Apostle Paul while he was Saul of Tarsus, while he needed to undergo conversion. See, people who need to undergo conversion can come in a variety of shapes and sizes. Now he was a violent man hurting the church, but he was hurting it out of a zeal for God. He thought he was serving God in what he was doing. He felt strongly and passionately about his belief in God so much so that he was doing these things. He practiced what he preached. But there's other folks in the book of Acts who are some decent-looking folks who need to undergo conversion. Look in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. We'll meet Cornelius here in some more detail in the future. But at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God why is his story included? Because in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is going to be converted. Cornelius is going to undergo conversion. Cornelius, the man here who's described as a devout man who feared God, gave alms generously and prayed continually. You can be described that way and still need to undergo conversion. Huh? What about Lydia over in Acts chapter 16? What kind of background did she come from? Paul's proclaiming the gospel. In verse 14, chapter 16. One who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart To receive, to understand, to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, what happened in that moment? Her heart opened to something that previously she didn't get. Even though she was a person who prayed, who was a worshiper of God. it's very, very insightful, very insightful for us who live in a religious culture it's not as though and conversion's different for folks. Some people have got a lot of the raw materials that go into conversion when they come to their moment of conversion. They know a lot of the right stuff. They're even doing a lot of the right things. Lydia was, so was Paul, so was Cornelius. Listen, you can be in a setting where you're where you're living your life with an interest in God, with a level of connection with the activities of God. You can be praying. You can be giving stuff away. You can be attending the meetings and still be in need of conversion. It may explain a bunch of things about folks to realize. You can be in this meeting today, unconverted, as much in need of, of conversion as anybody we just described Lydia, Cornelius, or the Apostle. Paul. So, decent, God interested people need conversion. Second, conversion is from something. You are converted from something. We turn away from something. Immediately, Saul turns away from something. He's on his way to Damascus. He's he's got a certain value system operating in him that's bringing him to Damascus. He meets Christ. And he's still going to Damascus, but his whole life has changed now. The purpose that drove him to Damascus is now gone. He's now in Damascus under a totally different purpose. He was there to call away disciples. Now he's preaching to people and he's telling them, He is the Christ. I came here to drag you off because you believed he was the Christ. And now I join you in proclaiming he is the Christ. Conversion is from something. Now, listen to how Paul describes his life. You want to turn to Philippians 3. I put a little bit of it there in your outline, but if you want to see the fuller passage, listen to what Paul moved away from. This is his, his departure. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. Right, there was stuff that made up Saul's life that gave him confidence. I want to say it gave him religious confidence. It gave him a sense of, I'm, I'm all right with God. I'm doing what I need to be doing by God. Saul, are, are, are you and God okay? I'm, I'm a deeply religious man. That's what he would have said. Maybe you're here today and you would have answered it in a similar way. And you have confidence because you're deeply religious. He had confidence because he was deeply religious. And he would tell you today, he'd argue with you. You got a reason for confidence? I got more reason for confidence. This is the attitude that he's saying this. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. I mean, I went to Cambridge, man. I got the best degree you could get in the study of religion. Don't, don't tell me i got a reason to be confident in my religion. As to zeal, did I really mean it? Did I really practice what I preached? I was a persecutor of the church. I went to great lengths to get people who weren't doing it right, who didn't have my understanding of the right way to God. I went after those people. You do that? You live that passionately? As to righteousness under the law? Blameless. I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul's life of conversion was moving away from something. When he was converted on that road to Damascus, that moment of conversion... Whatever made up his life began to be rearview mirror material. He moved his life away from those things. Conversion for any of us involves moving away from something. Now, before you try and figure out what exactly is that something, don't don't be tempted to go down the wrong road, because I think this is why many of us miss conversion, misunderstand it we tend to think that we need now to move away from the bad things. That's what we need to do. I've been converted, become a Christian. I need to move away from the bad things. Well, the problem with some of these people is they didn't have a lot of bad things. They had some decent things in their life. The problem for them wasn't that they had to move away from bad things. They needed to move away from my things and move to God's things even though what they had was religious in nature. Their problem was that their life was this independent, self-generated life that even for them trying to hold it up before God was an offense to God. You need to move away from that. Wait, wait. what do you mean? I go to church? I help people out? You know how much money I gave away last year? I mean, not the guy on the street, I'll just take out 20, man, here. Yeah, I just I'm generous. Have you ever thought you're going to need to move away from those things? Wait, you mean I don't, I don't do those things anymore? No. The reason why you do those things, the trust and hope for which you have invested in those things, change. you need to move away from that, from what's formed the motive of life to be lived, truly, as the Bible declares, independent of God. I got this. I'm going to do it in my strength. I'm going to live the life by my power. Listen, we we live in a land that's that wants to promote your great belief in you being great. You can be great. Churches are preaching messages where the, the crux of the matter is trying to convince you that you can be great. You stop hanging around all those negative naysayers. You can be great. I'm not sure that's what the Bible's most interested in. I'm, I'm pretty interested in that. <laughs> I kind of like the way that sounds. I'm not sure that's what the Bible's most interested in. Here's this interesting thought. Mary Marisi wrote an article called Greatness as a Way of Life. It's a motivational speaker. It's a little detached from Christian things, but gives away what we're hanging around. She says, we all want great lives, right? It's just that we may have some funny ideas about what constitutes greatness. We may equate it with celebrity, public accomplishment, winning an Oscar, leading the next NASA expedition. But the likelihood that we'll wind up with a statue in our hand or the moon beneath our feet seems sufficiently remote that we may willingly exchange greatness for good enough. Shame on you. How readily we dismiss those dreams as childish fantasy. After all, most people go their entire lives without once being asked for their autographs. The truth is, we are born for greatness. God endows us with the potential to live a great life. Here you go. A great person is one who is respected and well-loved, makes a difference in the lives of others, and is remembered beyond his or her lifetime. A great person makes dreams come true that benefit others. A great person leaves a mark. Well... We all have this capacity. How many of us choose to exercise our divine potential is another matter? Greatness is not born of luck or talent. It is a product of habit and hard work. Remember, greatness is your destiny. So come on, let's get going. You be great. Now, when you look at that, what does it mean for a human being to be great? Now, if I go back to the original playbook, a human being was made in the image of God. The greatest role that a human being will ever play is to image God. That that is a purpose statement for us. We are imagers of God. We make the invisible God visible. It's the greatest thing you'll ever do is allow the greatness of God to be seen through your life. That's the greatest thing you'll ever do. And I don't quite find that in that statement. And there's this little substitute. What's interesting here is she even involves God in this equation. God wants you to be great. No, not exactly. God wants his greatness to be seen through your life. That's a little different, but you miss it and you miss heaven. It's that significant. How many of us have ever thought that perhaps God wants us to repent, to be converted from, to turn our back on the lifelong ambition that we've had to be great? I want to be great. I want to be great at this. Now you're going to develop some categories where you want to be great. You want to perform great, better than anybody else. You want to look great to sound great. You want people to remember you. You want to have a name. You want to be significant. You want success in whatever field. Well, that, that can be a defining thing for you. But, but here's, here's the problem. There's a reason why the necessity of our life is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you don't get that one right, the next one falls to pieces. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, if, I, if I abandon this one, if my passion in life is not about the greatness of God, it will be about my greatness. Even if I learn to hang around making other people great for the sake that I can get close and be kind of great. Right? Ever, ever be okay with being the number two guy? Right? I, you know, I'd be the number two guy to LeBron. You know, hang with LeBron, part of LeBron's crew. I mean, he's more noticed than I am, but at least... I'm noticed. I'm more noticed than most of the rest of you. I'm great. I'm greater than you are. And some of us, that's enough. I just want to be great in enough people's eyes. But the problem is when I want to be great and then you get in the way of my greatness, sin burst onto the relational arena. All of a sudden now, now I'll neglect you. Now I'll use you. Now I'll move on from you. You thought I'd be committed to you and help you. No, no, I'm on to my greatness. Moving on from you. Got to get into some new realm here, some new relationships that are going to help further my greatness project. And I've already used up how you can help me. I'm done with you. Move on. You're in my way. You know, why, why is it that, that men... Fall in love with their careers at the expense of their marriages and their families and other things. Why is that? Because they're at work on a greatness project. That's why. I want to be great. And and I found a category where I can be great. I I do this really well. I excel at this. I could get noticed for this. I can make money and be known for that. I could be successful in this, even if it's at her expense and my kid's expense because I'm in the My Greatness Project, and I don't want to look that way, so I'll just try and divert that, but this is about my greatness. I I wonder if the need for our life is to repent of the pursuit of our own greatness at the expense of God's. Now, now that's a little different, right? Because now it's not just bad things, is it? I don't just need to be turning away from bad things. I need to be turning away from my things that are in the way of God's things in my life. And that's the basis of conversion. That's what we are converted from. David Wells says, the goal of conversion is nothing less than loving God with all one's will, emotion, and thinking. Whereas previously, all of these faculties were engaged in self-love. you can be going to church and loving what the church does for you. Loving the position it affords you. Loving the platform it gives you. Loving the sense of acceptance. I haven't found acceptance anywhere. I feel significant when I'm part of the church. And I can make it all about me. And you'll find out whether it's all about you when the wheels come off of it. When people stop serving your agenda. People fall short of your expectations. I mean, hey, you were in a small group for a while there, right? You know, and it sounded exciting and it was fulfilling for a little while. But, you know, then those people stopped showing up in my life the way I wanted them to. They stopped reinforcing things for me. They stopped saying things that made me feel significant and cared for. Then actually, I had a need in my life and none of them, none of them showed up. Not even the covenant group leader called. Did you survive? Well, yeah. Well, what are you so angry about? They refused to treat me as great. That's what I'm angry about. They refuse to treat my life like it was significant the way I demand that they treat me that way. That's what's at the heart of so much of our relational breakdowns. What if God's calling us to to not love our own lives that way, but to love his greatness and to love his glory? Jesus was mistreated constantly, and yet it never controlled the next thing that he was going to do. People misread him, misunderstood him, accused him of things, and yet he just did the next thing for the glory of God in his life. That's what defined who he was. Jesus had no need to repent. But he did come bringing a message of repentance, the heart of conversion. Question, do you believe that Jesus' introductory proclamation of the gospel to humanity applies to you personally? How did Jesus introduce his message Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has emerged from the temptation in the wilderness. He's going public now. And he's going to preach. From that time, verse 17, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the first word out of the mouth of the proclaimer of the gospel. Repent. Turn. Is repentance a message for everyone? Does everyone need to repent? I and mean, it sounds it's like such a strong word. Conversion. Everybody needs to be converted. I mean, I think just the really bad people need that, right? I mean, some people are just decent people. They need to repent? Doesn't even make sense. All right, so here's Jesus preaching a message. Variety of audience here. He's got all kinds of people. And he says one word to them all repent. Every one of you are going to need to repent. Wait, well, does does that work? Really? I mean, you, you you travel in your own world, right? You got somebody like this, living on your street. Everybody does that, that kind old lady, her husband's no longer alive. She lives by herself, but she's just the kindest thing. She drives a car that looks like it belongs in a museum and it's an incredible shape. And she bakes cookies and she gives them to your children. Everybody in the neighborhood loves her. She's just the kindest human being you've ever met in your life. Does she need to repent? Or is repentance really for the the guy who, I don't know, maybe you're here this morning. You know, you drove here on your Harley. Tattoos flapping in the wind. Ponytail hanging out the back of your helmet. Smoking a joint flicked it into a car, burned the guy's upholstery. Does that, I mean, that guy, right? (laughs) That guy needed to hear Jesus say that. Repent. Oh, yeah, (laughs) definitely. That dude definitely needs to repent. All right, who needs to repent more? Now they do need to repent differently, right? But they both need to repent. Who needs to be converted more? Well, they both equally need conversion. But just conversion's going to look a little different. I don't know. Maybe that lady is kind of like the Lydia, the Thyatira lady. Maybe she's just, you know, driving some old chariot around making purple garments. And then, you know, along comes the Apostle Paul. I don't know if he had tattoos and drove a Harley, but I can imagine he was a rough dude. Which one needs conversion more? Well, they, they, they both need Conversion. And at the heart of the message of the gospel is that everyone, everyone needs to turn from themselves to God. Everyone. Luke chapter 24, Jesus explaining his final thoughts to his disciples. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This is the mandate of the Son of God. When you go, here's the program. You present this, what I have done, who I am, and that man must repent and receive forgiveness. That's the program. You must repent. Acts chapter 2, verse 37, when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter just follows instructions. Peter said to them, Oh, what did Jesus say? Uh, Repent. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Both are proclaimed. Both are critically important. Acts 17 verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. This is this is not this is not a negotiable element to the gospel. This, this is presented to the disciples as key ingredients to the program conversion, the element that you will need to turn away from something and turn to something is at the heart of what we proclaim. I think I wrote this in your outline. Repentance is not a small optional element of the Christian life. It is a defining moment. It is included in the charter statement of gospel proclamation. when you go back and revisit your experience of becoming a Christian, were you you launched into Christianity from the launching pad of repentance? The launching pad that produced former things in your life. You moved away from something. Listen, whether you're an old lady or a guy smoking a joint you got something to move away from. You've got a life that's been created in the strength of the flesh that is the image of man to move away from and to receive the work of God into your life in a way that changes you and you become the image bearer of God for his glory and greatness to be proclaimed. You have got something to move away from. When you encountered the gospel... And you responded to it. What was your response? I think it would be an incomplete understanding of what we see here in this passage to say, you know, I really like that idea of, of, of getting this guilt off my back. I like that. I heard about forgiveness. I like that. Did, did you hear about the repentance part? Because the proclamation was about forgiveness and repentance. Repentance. And it's the repentance that produces former things and new things. It's turning in life in a different direction. I, I, I fear greatly for this age of Christianity, this watered-down effect in our culture that many of us might be here going, let me, let me, let me go back and revisit. Hmm, what, what, what did I respond to and how did I respond? Do you remember repenting as your response to the good news of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf to restore you to God. Right? There is a from element and then there is a to element. Our last point. Conversion is to something. In conversion, a new life, an operation of life invades one's personal experience. Right? The conversion of Saul to Paul redefined this man. All, all of a sudden, he was oriented around some new things. His purpose in life changed. He didn't just accommodate some helpful thoughts from God into his existing plan for life. He abandoned something and something else overwhelmed him as more important now in his life. And he, his own comments on his conversion, again, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Of all the years Saul of Tarsus lived, Ambitiously risk taker, willing to go after people, zealous for a cause, investing in education, wanting to be known for certain things. All this stuff piling up, stuff, his life, his name. I was advancing faster than anybody else my age. There there was no peers for me to compete with. I had outdistanced them all. I had a career track. I, I was going to be somebody in my world. And he encounters Christ in conversion and he turns his back on all that and devalues it. This not worth anything. Why was it not worth anything anymore? Because of something that surpassed it in value. This went from being a stockpile of stuff to being a little bitty pebble against the empire state building of value he had encountered something that revolutionized what he had believed about his life and what was important. See, conversion is from something to something. You get converted to God. Look in Acts chapter 14, verse 15. Apostle Paul says, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. You should turn from vain things to a living God. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. See, the conversion's got some really deep, radical, important stuff in it. There is a moment where turning to God is a significant, costly, important, redefining moment in our lives. It needs to be held before us that way. Right, I'm not trying to be ugly here, but this is a frame of reference and as a concern. If you're kind of drawn to some stuff like this. Um, you don't hear a guy like a Joel Osteen Preaching on repentance. You, you hear him preach on the benefits, but you don't hear him preach on conversion, turning, stop, start. You don't, you don't hear that. And what it creates in us is the normalizing of the idea that when you get saved and you become a Christian, you know, here here's all your stuff, and most of it, like most Americans, it's not like, oh, I got saved, Jesus, make me a better drug dealer. Who, man, I'm, I'm going to be the greatest drug dealer ever. Most people realize, no, that's bad. See, that's bad stuff. I got saved, I got to turn from bad stuff. How about I got saved, I got to turn from my stuff to God's. And the proclamation that says, Jesus has come to forgive you of your sins. And to give you an abundant life, and it doesn't say, and you'll need to repent and receive it. Creates this idea that, hey, look at all this stuff I got. I've got a big backpack full of stuff I've been building for all these years. And what? Jesus will forgive me? That's great. And he'll come with me now. And make everything more and and more impressive than it ever could. Jesus wants to help me be greater? I'm all over that. Come on. Come on, Jesus. And there's no sense of conversion. There's no turning to God to where he becomes the treasure in our lives. We had treasure before we knew Jesus. Now we still got treasure. And now we've learned how to get Jesus to give us more of our treasure. And he still is not the treasure. Did you see this passage here? You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son, to serve him and to wait for him, to serve him and to wait for him. It is an obsession. It is a daily delight in serving him and waiting for his appearing. It is a, it is a love affair of the heart that longs for God more than anything else. Everything else, I count gladly as loss. And I'm looking for him. Oh, I can't wait for the day I will see him face to face. I'm longing for the one that I love the most that's in my heart. I've turned from something to something, to the living God. That song that we sang earlier, the sun comes up. It's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Every day. Every day. Say, look, this, this is what conversion involves. This is what the experience of conversion contains in it. This is a big deal. This is a redefining deal. In the life of a Christian. Now in just a moment, I'm going to make most all of us extremely uncomfortable, because I'm going to call into question our conversion. Have you really experienced conversion? The good news is if you if you have not, receive it this morning. But if you have not, how do you know if you have not? Let me skip to this last. I think I've got a quote up here from JC Ryle. Gentlemen. Do we have a quote? I know we don't have it in the outline, so I know we're supposed to have it here. J.C. is a pastor writing in the late 1800s in England. And he has a way with words I've always appreciated. But he speaks about, back up one, conversion. Here we go. Eric, you can go ahead and come up. He says, without conversion of heart, we cannot serve God on earth. We have naturally neither faith nor fear nor love toward God and his son, Jesus Christ. We have no delight in his word. We take no pleasure in prayer or communion with him. We have no enjoyment in his ordinances, his house, his people, or his day. We have a form of Christianity and keep up a round of ceremonies and religious performances. But without conversion, we have no more heart in our religion than a brick or a stone. I want you to explore with me because I think that's a helpful reality check. I want you to explore whether you have these symptoms of an unconverted life. You look into your own life. Do I have the symptoms that I'm I'm really not converted? I I haven't experienced this moment when my heart launches out like in Acts chapter 2 and says, What must I do? when I've taken my life and all that it's meant and all that I've pursued and all the goals and things that I've striven for and I've put it in a different perspective as though I'll be fine without those. I, I don't need to have those things. What I need to have is knowing Christ, is gaining him for whom I have willingly suffered the loss of all things. That's, that's conversion. And with that comes an affection for God. It was the affection for God that drove you to say no to everything else. Listen, if you're finding I can't seem to say no to everything else, it's because you don't, you don't have a surpassing value. The moment you have a surpassing value, the moment you do, you'll say no to that. That's just how it works. Which is worth more? Well, if you're saying yes to this, yes to this, yes to this, well, I can just tell you right now. You haven't found anything more valuable. That's why you won't let that go. Why are you so ambitious? Why are you so freaked out that that might get lost in your life? You might not have that anymore. Why does that freak you out? Why you, Why'd you take somebody's head off over that the other day? Why do you live fearful? Why do you wake up in the morning with this dragon sitting on your chest? Scared to death about life in some category. Why is that? Because you've put your hope in that thing. That thing's determining your life. That ambition, that goal, that pleasure. I've got got to have that. There's there's such a pleasure in this. Are you telling me there isn't greater pleasure in Christ? Because if that's the reality if there's not a greater pleasure in Jesus Christ, then this thing over here is what's ruling in our lives. It's kind of hard to make that a past thing when it's such a present thing, such an important thing, such a controlling thing in life. If I could draw blood from you, we could check for... Levels in our bloodstream. Here, check with me here. Invite the Holy Spirit to help you. Without conversion of heart, we cannot serve God on earth. We have naturally neither faith, nor fear, nor love toward God and His Son. Do you you have faith toward God? Do you have an appropriate fear of God? And his son. Do you love God and his son? Well, Then I think these other statements here fall in place somewhere. We have no delight in his word. Are you, are you here with no delight in God's word? Just God's word. It just, just, just doesn't, doesn't draw me. I'm not, I'm not all that interested. I can't even tell you when the last time. I don't even know where my Bible is. We take no pleasure in prayer or communion with him. I mean, come on. When we live these lives that I don't, I don't pray, I don't get around God, I don't commune with God, I, I don't enjoy, I don't look to run away with God, I don't look to create venue to connect with God, I don't enjoy pouring my heart out to God and receiving from God. Those things don't affect me. That's not normal for a person who's been converted. Stop. Stop treating that like it's normal. I have no enjoyment in his ordinances, his house, his people, or his day. You know, this gathering. These people here, God's people, their lives, the condition of their lives, how they're doing, how they're encouraged, how they're walking in this world. Does it matter to you when someone stumbles and falls? Do you look at the Christian landscape and you're unaffected? Does it affect you? Is it somebody that's close to you? No, but it's, it's somebody for whom Christ died. It's his son or daughter. Does it affect you? We have a gathering of God's people here. We gather together so we can be influenced by God's presence and God's word. Do I treat this gathering like, well, if I got time, it just doesn't really do much for me. Listen, if these words describe you, then, then you need to question your conversion. If you can live, I I would do no service to you. Now listen, I'll tell you right now, I'm not trying to freak out every Christian in here who's wrestling with sin and wrestling with failing and fighting for motivation. No, the mere fact that you are wrestling and you are fighting and you're engaged is screaming out at you that you actually probably have been converted because you live in a fallen world and you are fighting for something. This great value has seized your life, but you are fighting everything in you to not hold on to these things, but you want that more than you want this. And you know that. All right, so I'm not trying to get you to freak out because you're fighting to experience all that God has for you. But if you've been going through the motions and you have no passion for God, you don't delight in God's word, you don't ever seek to commune with Him and pray to Him, you don't value the things that He values, like the gathering of His people and the well being of other Christians and the advancement of the gospel into the lost. None of that seems to matter to you. Stop thinking that's normal. It's not normal. There's something terribly, terribly wrong. This this American Christianity, it's a very blurry, blurry thing, very confusing thing. It's got so much right words in it, but it might be lacking so much reality. God wanted a whole lot more. He purchased a whole lot more for us. Let me invite you just to to allow the Holy Spirit. He's here with us today. He gathers us so that he might influence, communicate with us, convict us, lead us into the truth. Lead you from where you are into whatever truth God has this morning for you. Let's just open our hearts to him. Let's stand up together. passages, the ones we've just read today, you didn't hesitate to put in the same sentence the call for repentance and the announcement of what Christ did on our behalf that we could never do for ourselves. So Lord, I know that there is a tension in our hearts, even right now as we try to examine our own lives. The good news of the gospel that has come to us is the news about what Jesus has done on our behalf, in our place. It is in these passages. He has absorbed the punishment and wrath of God on our behalf. We will never go to our own cross and moment of judgment. Amen. And yet, Lord, once you had accomplished the cross, you turned to your disciples and you said, go and proclaim this, repentance and forgiveness of sins. Lord, perhaps there are some here this morning who have not embraced repentance. They have not turned they look at their life and they can't find a past. They can't find when things stopped. They can't find an altering point. They can't find when your surpassing value became an obsession to them. They can't find the day when they began to serve the living God. They can't find a moment when they begin to long for the return of the living God. Lord, this morning, would you wreck the idea that that's what Christianity could be? A people who don't long for you? A people who don't love you above everything else? Lord, would you rescue us from that moment? From that idea? And this morning, Lord, would you invite people? Maybe right now you're just sensing God doing this in your heart. Would you invite people to turn? To turn to you? To turn away from? To have former things in their lives? Former pleasures? This morning, I believe God is telling some people, turn away from the pleasures that have defined your life and turn to me. And at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. I'll give you pleasures that'll surpass any other pleasures. Turn to me. Do you believe that? Listen, if you're hesitating right now, it's because you believe in a savior that's pleasures in this world. Turn from it. Tell God, God, no longer. I don't put my hope in that any longer achievements, goals, ambitions, things that have occupied you and dominated your life this morning. God is saying, turn. Turn from those things. And turn to me. Receive all that I am. Be about me. Be about my glory. Be about my greatness. Expend yourself and give yourself to being my image in this world. Proclaiming. Allowing my life to be seen and observed in and through you. I'm, I'm forgiving your sins that you might come to me. Come to me. This morning listen, you can be a part of this church but maybe you haven't come to Christ. Maybe you've come to a different gathering of people. Maybe you've come to a desire to no longer be strung out on drugs. Maybe you've come from a wrecked life wanting to be an improved life but have you come to Christ if you come to Him Jesus calls and he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Turn from those things and come to me. Lord, this morning, right now, listen, if you've not done that in your life, do it right now. Turn from anything but Christ saying, Lord, you, you are what I want. You are what I need. Jesus, I'm coming to you this morning. Whatever else I've been after, you are the one I'm after. You are my hope in this life. You are my future. I'm here to serve you. And I'm here to search for and long for your return that I might be with you forever. This morning, I turn to you, Lord. Oh Lord, may it never be the same never the same for Paul, may it never be the same for us Lord may it redefine us may it bring a day that we look back on and said it all changed, it all changed on that day, Lord would you make it change in our lives, you are good, you have a great and incredible plan in store for us as you did for Paul you sent a man to let him know I'm calling you to something Saul, Tarsus God, this morning, would you let us know you're calling us to something, to serve and to wait for your return, to make much of our God while the world makes much of everything else. You are our great treasure. So close in this this song. I'm fighting something right now, it's why you're watching me just think I'm fighting the thought that for some of us here, it is this moment that will bring a new normal i don't want I don't want to just rush off from it I, I don't want to produce a sense of heaviness for you, but I want the issue to be real. Churches are filled, not just those churches, guys, not just those denominational churches. Churches are filled with people who don't look like this. There's no former things and no new passion and no new delight. Conversion is a moment of turning. It is a moment of repenting. It is a moment where everything that has defined you gets redefined. To your young person here, you are so in danger of having grown up in an environment where you think you're something that you're not. You're not converted just because you attend this church. You're not converted because every once in a while you hoist up a prayer. You know you're converted when you experience an obsession going off in your heart, a passion and a delight for the living God. You turn from vain things to the living God. He's alive and he's real and he visits and affects you on a daily basis. Doesn't mean you don't have to struggle. Doesn't mean you don't have to fight. But it's a reality. And if you're sitting here saying it's not real to me, it's not real to me. Then ask God for grace to see him. You don't see him. You think you see him. You see words. You hear concepts. You have not met the living God. No one will have to talk you into devaluing that when you've met him. When you see value, you will see the worthlessness of these things. Nobody had to tell Paul to stop putting value in those things. He met value. I just want you to meet value. I don't want you to be faking it, I don't want you to be missing it. It's just too important. So if this isn't isn't real in your life, then as we sing this song, you you turn to God in faith and you turn from and you turn to. You meet this God who's forgiven your sins and wants to give you himself above all other things in your life. There must be more than this O oh, breath of God come breathe within